So it's been 50 episodes since we started this podcast. In honor of that achievement, we're christening this episode Advanced Dungeons. My question for you guys is, how have you changed? How has your perception of dungeons changed in your games since episode one? Hmm. I've actually banned dungeons from my games. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, uh, this is interesting because when it, it's really weird thinking back when, when we recorded episode one, um, I had not done Tomb of Annihilation. Uh, I The only dungeons I've done were like my own creations and some from Tales of the Yawning Portal that 5e released. Um, and now I have done Tomb of Annihilation twice. Well, I'm almost done with the second time. Uh, with with two separate groups. Uh, and I've also, and right smack dab in the middle of Dungeon of the Mad Mage. So I am like inundated with dungeons now. And I feel like I, just looking back at my thoughts on episode one, like... I have so much more experience with dungeons and mega dungeons to where this is this is going to be fun. I'm excited to to delve back in. I feel like dungeons are just bottle episodes. <laughs> where, <laughs> but let me unwrap that hot magma takes, dude. <laughs> because it's it's a very controlled environment and it allows a lot more creative control over the smallest details in general. If you want to write a more specific story or you have a specific narrative that you're trying to tell dungeons are really for me have become more of a storytelling technique whereas the broad world is kind of more expansive and can be used to just be more ambient noise whereas dungeons are very specific entities almost wow i I feel like they've taken on more life that's interesting so you went (laughs) I was thinking you were using it as like a total like diss on dungeons, but really bottle episodes do serve a purpose. And that literally the term bottle, like it's like you're confining the space um, and giving more creative control over, over the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, yeah, that's exactly what dungeons are. So yeah, that's exactly, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what they are. So instead of having to worry about your characters wandering off, to like, oh, I want to go see this like random no name shop and mess with the the barkeep. They're they're like stuck inside a dungeon and now they have to progress through this narrative story. Hmm. Interesting. Similar to David, I think that my view of dungeons is usually as a culmination of something, or it is uh, like a bottle episode. It's a focused session a focused series of sessions that are all kind of doing the same kind of thing i don't know if i can communicate my thoughts any better than you two have because unfortunately i think we're all in agreement well okay let, let's compare first episode to this one um has anything changed i know that me and david gave an exact percentage in the first episode that i said about 20 percent of my sessions were in dungeons uh, and David said about a third, so about 33% of his, his sessions were in dungeons. And I don't think Will gave an answer, but do we think anything's changed since then about that number? Oh, definitely. Yeah, mine is much higher. Mine is probably as high as 50% now. Wow. Mine's probably like 60% because Whoa. my definition of a dungeon has <laughs> almost changed where it's not uh, like a phys- like if we're talking about like a physical like dungeon that's underground or in a prison or wherever then yeah it's probably significantly lower but 
in terms of controlled environments like a bottle episode it's definitely more like 60 percent of my games would be more controlled mm. than open world what is your updated percentage oh uh mine well I, it, mine is skewed because i'm running dungeon of the mad mage which is the epitome <laughs> of a dun like a mega dungeon <laughs> So uh, with that, I'm doing two groups. So, and they're right right now. They're in the middle of the the two of annihilation. So, right now it's a hundred percent. But uh, <laughs> I'd say it's it's somewhere like my usual game. It's probably about twenty five percent in dungeons. It's a little little up as well. Wow, well changed so much. Welcome to Vox Arcana. I'm William. I'm Jake. I'm David. And this is a podcast about tabletop RPGs, game design, and advice for all dungeon masters. This is episode 50, Advanced Dungeons. For those of you in the audience who are joining us for the first time, we highly recommend going back and listening to our very first episode, the pilot episode, if you will, titled Dungeons. Should be renamed to Basic Dungeons. Oh, if only we had planned. Ahead. If only we had the foresight to <laughs> tell. That's we... going to be the next one is basic dungeons. <laughs> at, at episode one hundred, you could mark me on that. <laughs> basic. <laughs> oh, ooh, all right. Well, let's get to it. Let's talk about mega dungeons. Yes. All yes. right. So we we neglected to talk about this in the initial episode because we were just talking about the basics of dungeons and later dragons as well. Um. Jake, describe what you think a mega dungeon is, and I want David to weigh in here too. Okay, so mega dungeons are dungeons that are sprawling, are massive, that uh, you cannot go through in one session or in one day's time. Like, it is so big that it you cannot possibly hope to go through it quickly. It's, it's hmm. kind of, it's kind of, uh, what's that, like, this is my life now. <laughs> Like I am like your whole party has to kind of, if you're running these games has to accept like, okay, yeah, this we're in a dungeon now and we're going to be here for a long time. So if your definition of a mega dungeon is just like a big sprawling space that you travel and adventure through, isn't your whole world just a giant mega dungeon? Yeah. Well, okay. Arguably, so yeah. Uh, yeah, this is where we get into the minutia of the the definition of dungeon. Um, but like we said in the first episode, there's uh, the point of the dungeon is to narrow the focus and, and essentially bottle up the players into an environment where they can't just say, I head east, uh, where they're, they are forced into an area that's small. They can't just fly upwards or uh, dig I guess they could dig down, but like the, it, they're <laughs> bottled up. It, it narrows the possibilities. And so it gives it a stronger narrative focus. It gives it a stronger um, kind of really a stronger rails that the, that the adventure is on. Um, and of course there are more open world dungeons and all of these definitions bleed into each other. But no, I feel like, I don't know. We talked about this in the first episode too, and I don't want to keep going back to it, but uh, like instances uh, mm. from World of Warcraft. Like, the term instance is, like, it's this very specific moment in a place and time where you are doing a dungeon. And it's kind of this event. It's not like this... I don't know. That's why it feels so different than, like, a free open world thing to me. Yeah, and I think... Because I ran the first two levels of DMM, the Dungeon of the Mad Mage. Uh, 
And there's something about it that is different than overworld exploration because I think there's a lot of narrative hand-waving that can happen when you say, I want to travel from Fandelver to Waterdeep or whatever. But when you're going through a dungeon, it's like, okay, now you're in this room, and then here's this hallway, and then here's this dead body of the kobold you stabbed last time. And and you, you kind of see the same things a lot as you're making these trips in and out. I think Mega Dungeons are a lifestyle game. Like Typically, this could be even a whole campaign or a large portion of a campaign. And not everybody is going to get down with that. For sure, yeah. You have to be very clear about the the type of game you're running. Um, yeah. And that's why I've always thought in regards to 5e and the wizard's choice to make Waterdeep, Dragon Heist, and Waterdeep, Dungeon of the Bad Mage, into like kind of one property, like one continuous 1 through 20 adventure, which I'm doing right now and it's been wonderful. But it is a stark contrast between... Dragon Heist and Dungeon of the Mad Mage because one is so urban and heist centric and just all of this uh, politics and uh, interpersonal dialogue between all these different factions and then it just you dive into a dungeon and it's kind of like wait okay so now years of our lives are going to be spent (laughs) in here now and so there has to be obviously appropriate breaks that I've been kind of dealing with how to uh, I've been trying to figure out how to do best uh, from the dungeon. But yeah, it is. Like you said, I love that term lifestyle game. Like you have to make a conscious choice. Like this mega dungeon, it's going to be what we're doing <laughs> and only what we're doing for a long time. Um, so I'm looking through the uh, table of contents for DMM and there's 20 levels and they all have really fun themes, uh, encounters, adventures, all this kind of stuff. And I think they really did a good job of hitting the three pillars of the the core design of 5e, which is exploration, role-playing, and combat. I wonder if you could take apart this product. Um, so, like, for instance, level one is the dungeon level. Level two is the arcane chambers, and I won't say any more because people might cry spoiler. But uh, they all have really evocative names. What if I just took this, and I don't tell players it's a dungeon, and I just theme areas in my world now around this stuff, and I keep the same factions and NPCs and that stuff? How does the game change? How, what, how does the feeling of the game change? I don't think it changes that much. I mean, because it's just kind of instead of... It's like it, it's like you can explore the areas at any time, right? Uh, yeah, it would be fairly nonlinear. So now I can just so jump I down think, to level 19 or whatever. Yeah, well, the thing I think is like a dungeon is like a hyper-controlled defined area where everything is mapped out. Like you know where every pillar is, you know what's in every hex. And that brings a different level to the game that you're playing where it, it it does become more gamey and it does become more rigid because everything as it already exists, like it's already pre-written down, pre-ordained and there's not as much room for flexibility because you have the whole dungeon mapped out. I have two things to say about that. First, Uh you can alter. I've been doing so many alterations to the, the official 5e Dungeon of the Mad Mage. I've edited, moved in, switched out stuff, deleted whole portions. So I don't think it, it makes it like, oh, crap, they have to go this way because this is, you know, how it's drawn on the map. I guess if you're using the map, you have to be kind of like, oh, yeah, just erase that. <laughs> but um, I think that's that's not really a problem for me. No, no, but I, I think that's a it's a very specific feeling that you get because – Let's say you're going through a dungeon and you kind of map out and you say these are the three main areas. There's not really room to go, 
well, can I go to the bar? Like, is there a bar in this town? <laughs> like, there's not, like, like, is there yeah. a bar in this? Like, there's mm. not that, uh, there's not as much player feedback where it's, it's the, the DM telling the players what's in the world. Whereas the players, it's, it's not as interactive almost. For sure. But I think that, that you're, try, conversation... you're, you're trying to ask questions and see what's here. And that on a level of like world building. Because it is such a confined space. For sure. But I think that conversation has to happen before, like not during the game. Like obviously, yes. if, if they're going, hey, where's the bar? It's like, hey, bro, we've been in this mega dungeon for 40 days. Like there's no <laughs> bar. <laughs> I think well, that's... Yeah. Well, getting back to the like mega dungeon topic. It, when you play that style of game, it almost is uh, counterintuitive to do any type of world building because the whole point of your game is being in this like controlled confined space. So there's no real reason to talk about or ask questions about an outside world because that's not really relevant to your game. You don't worry about the politics of what's on the surface when you, all you know is underground. So that's, that's what I've been struggling with is I, I don't want it to be like, Oh, who cares about what's happening above ground? We're just here delving through the dungeon, right? Like, I want them to be like, oh, crap. How is the Republic responding to the political threats that we initiated in Dragon Heist? Like, oh, crap. What are they going to do once they get into the dungeon and try to beat us? You know, like, all sorts of, of different... I want to... That's why I've been struggling with, like, how often they can return to the surface, that sort of thing. Because I want to balance i don't want them to just be like whatever who cares what's happening in the dm's world like i want there to be some interaction between what's happening in the world and and them diving in the dungeon i want it to be uh entwined entangled because i think that's really important to keep the global story connected with the intimate stories of the characters in the dungeon yeah i think there's definitely a a shift in uh in the game design i mean you know me as the uh the osr kind of uh apologist over here but i think that there's such a stark difference between what 5e uh, players expect and what osr players expect where the old game is much more like a board game where you go on these delves and you go to get treasure and you go out and that's sort of all you do and and you go back and forth and i've been running a game like that um that i've had great fun with but after a while it is kind of repetitive and after a while you are kind of just craving something different yeah and and for me, in terms of a mega dungeon, I don't know that I would want to do a fifth edition mega dungeon because the combat is so taxing and slow at times, and that is the it is that is like the hyper focus of the game is just delving through a dungeon, and I think that the greatest things about dungeons is the context of their existence. So like, why are you going to this space to fight this? big bad evil guy and like what is it what is the significance in the world if you kind of just focus on the dungeon portion the significance of what you're doing in the dungeon just is lost well so i don't know if i agree in fact i in fact, I disagree okay. that a dungeon is exclusively about combat and I didn't realize this until I was listening to um, Mike Shea, who runs the Sly Flourish YouTube channel. He's mm-hmm. written a fantastic book that I really recommend everyone read called The Lazy Dungeon Master Guide or, or something like that. Um, you can tell how good it is because I can't remember the name, but I really do recommend it. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, but he says that 
in 5e, you want to hit those three pillars as often as possible. And he used, actually, of all things, the Tomb of Annihilation to demonstrate how you can always uh, see this in the game. And, and when we played through the Tomb of Annihilation, mm-hmm. it seemed like it was constantly combat and very little interaction, like socially. Yes. And I looked at it, and I was like, well, heck, I could run even Dungeon of the Mad Mage, and if you really play up the faction part of the game, you, you ask yourself... Um, what if the players could play through the entire dungeon without, with very minimal fighting? Like, they can mostly just scheme and manipulate their way through the dungeon. Like, that's not how I ran it, but looking at it, I'm like, I kind of wonder if I could. Because then that just leaves you with puzzles. It leaves you with the occasional fight with things that can't be negotiated with, like a uh, gelatinous cube or something. And then all these humanoid factions who you can definitely negotiate with and make deals with. Like, that's much more interesting to me than just like, okay, here's another room, here's another group of monsters, fight them. For me, though, that almost starts to go away from uh, the purpose and existence of, like, what dungeons are designed to do because you're taking away that defined nature and rulesiness of a dungeon and you're moving into something else, which isn't bad. And it's not, like, I totally enjoy that kind of thing because from, like, even looking at the supplements in 5th edition, the way they're written really puts a hyper-focus on... Like, the rules. This is how this room works. This is the interactions of how it works. Like, mm-hmm. this is, like, you have a room where you can walk upside down. Like, this is, this is, these are all the interactions that you can have. And it's all these pre-written rules about, like, how combat works and all of that in the room. And it doesn't really focus on those story elements of, like, these are the different factions that you can focus on. And you can interact with them in this way or this way. And I want to hear that, what, that so starts to move away let's hear from, from the king of of non-combat encounters yes. himself, Jake Barton. <laughs> so um, I think with the design of 5e, I mean, first off, to comment on what David was saying, um, like, you should never be a slave to definitions. You should never be like, well, I'd love to have a cool non-combat scene, but this is a dungeon, and so I can't. <laughs> like, I, I feel like, I think 5e was designed with that in mind, to where, okay, if someone wants to add in a random bar staffed by ghost ghosts in this one place like they can do it like i don't know i think it's just so easy to insert those things that like i guess now that i really think about it i'm running the dungeon of the mad mage but oh my gosh i'm using probably 50 percent of what's in the book and i am adding in so much stuff to keep that balance between exploration and um interaction like socially and combat uh and so yeah i don't know like I feel like with a few simple, like, twists and tricks that you can use as a dungeon master, you can solve all these problems in, like, ten minutes. You know, to add, to make the experience of a dungeon whatever it needs to be. And I I like what Will was saying of, like, yeah, I want to infuse more of this into um, my dungeons. And, yeah, if you're making a dungeon look more like the the world above, that's fine. Like, I don't know. I think my my thing is just being a slave to definitions is... I I think the whole thing of Dungeons & Dragons with this collective imagination storytelling thing is to... I mean, definitions should never play that big of a part. You should just, like, tell the best story, like, have the most inherent uh, fun things come out. And, yeah, definition Hmm. of dungeon be damned, right? And I think that... There's so as I was kind of getting back to um, the OSR thing, I don't know if 5e needs mega dungeons because 
And certainly as a 5e player, I don't know if I would get as much enjoyment out of just constantly going lower and lower and lower and fighting more and more guys. Or or even like in my theoretical version where you're just talking and negotiating to get down. Like, what's the point of that? And like I know for, for Dungeon of the Mad Mage, my idea was just to split out all of the levels and you just make them individual dungeons out in your world somewhere. So now you have 20 dungeons. Okay. You know, from level 1 to 20. Let and me now, defend it. Let me defend Dungeon of the Mad Mage. Oh, please do. Okay, okay. So... I have played it with because okay, the main villain is obviously the Mad Mage, Halister Black Cloak, and I've played it as he essentially. I mean, he's mad. I play him like the Joker, and so he grabs these like planes of existence, like he grabs these parts of other planes of existence and smashes them together into like a linear format to where people have to go through from portal to portal, um, and it's really exciting because each level is so different. Mm-hmm. is so different. So suddenly you'll be in uh, an Egyptian style, like pyramids, like going through uh, tombs and fighting mummies and stuff. And then suddenly you'll be in a swamp fighting a frog hemoth. Uh, and then suddenly you'll be on the snow level. And then suddenly suddenly you're in like a Hogwarts like school for wizards. Like there's, there's so much variation that can only happen... I don't know if it can only happen in a dungeon, but it can only happen in a mega dungeon that's, I guess, cobbled together. I don't know if Mad Mage is so unique that I can see what you guys are saying about the staleness of like, okay, you you walk across the moist stones uh, and you continue forward with your torch and you're kind of always in that same environment. I think the main point of what I'm trying to say is a mega dungeon requires insane shifts of climate, of atmosphere. And to keep it interesting, because obviously Wizards of the Coast know if they have to make a mega dungeon, it can't just be stone walls and traveling through the same environment for years. Like it has to be crazy changes of this. So, so yeah, maybe a traditional mega dungeon I would probably not like, but I think Dungeon of the Bad Mage pulls so many different atmospheres and climates and types of monsters and environments to make something really, really fun to play. And that's not to say that I didn't like Mad Mage. I ran um, about the first one and a half levels of it across several sessions with just like a pickup group I was running. Um, And there's a tremendous amount of variety even in the first one and a half floors. Yeah. Like moment to moment. Like even the the north part of the first floor is different than the south part is different from the southeastern part. Um, And it was really, really quite fun. Um, I guess that my concern was just me projecting being worried that players are getting bored. Yeah. Because even like on the second floor, minor spoilers here, um, there's a a goblin market, like an open air market, Mm. um, that gives you just a very different set of things to do than, uh, than anything you've seen up until that point. So, um, yeah, definitely not a bad product, but just very strange. Like, if I was making a D&D world, I don't know if I would take the time to design a mega dungeon, certainly not one with 20 levels. (laughs) Because if you think of dungeons in the sense of like World of Warcraft, typically they were the culmination of a big quest line you've done. Like yeah, you go yeah. into the Dead Mines and kill Van Cleef, and that's you know that's your prizes, and that's like this yeah. cool story moment. And I think for Five E at least, you want to pursue more stuff like that and less things of like oh, there's just like this massive endless um, multiplanar bending weird thing underneath this uh, city. For sure, I think that I I, I like Will's point about. And talking about them potentially being boring because I played in the some of the dungeons that he's run and, the, and they've been uh, boring. <laughs> <project>. <laughs> and no! it's not that they've been boring; it's that 
there are often times where I want to, like, I go and I do something, and he's like, yeah, there's nothing there. And I and and that will happen a few times in a row where I'm getting feedback, and it's like, I, I expect something to happen narratively, but because there's nothing written in the book, and he's running it out of the book, it just kind of, like, creates this weird, um, like... I, I like I as a player I want there to be more to something. Will should have put a, a broomstick mimic right there, man. <laughs> no, I, no, I I, that, I get what you're that's, saying. That's that's like my main gripe with dungeons, and I, it's not like it's not a problem that can't be fixed because it's it's just a symptom of you know running pre-written materials. <laughs> okay, so I think the one David is speaking of is uh there's a hallway in the first level, minor spoilers, with a bunch of candles that are like magically floating and lit. And he basically played with the candles for like an in-game hour and an out-of-game 15 minutes trying to like crack <laughs> the mystery. And they don't do anything. And I'm like, should I make up something that happens or should I just like tell him nothing really happens? Yeah, that's because it will get to a it will get to a point where it's like, like Will will have to say like, there's yeah, there's nothing. no point in you like doing anything with this. Like, mm-hmm. you should move on oh, to something okay. else the, instead of like being able to turn it into something like interesting. If okay. that makes sense, this brings up a really really good point about dungeon mastering in general. I think mm-hmm. because um, if you're especially if you're going by the book. Something will happen, and they put in these incredibly enticing, mysterious circumstances, right? And a lot of times, the book just describes that, and then it's like, okay, cool. You expect your players to go, whoa, that's cool, and then move on. But definitely, if you see that as a player, David, logically, you're like, okay, what's going on here? There has to be something more to it. So there is an option as a dungeon master to to add in your own mystery, but that's really taxing. It takes a lot of improvisational skills that might lead to nothing. Um, and so I think this is a rare moment where you say, okay, out of character, like me- I'm metagaming as the dungeon master. There's nothing else to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've, I've done that more and more frequently where, where players will see like a broken mirror and they'll see stuff in it and they'll be like, <gasps> and they huddle around and they're taking about 10 minutes on it. And I'll be like, okay, guys, I just want to say, Metagaming, like, it's just a magical mirror that does this, but th- there's nothing else to it. Mm-hmm. And even though you break the immersion for just a little bit, that immersion breaking is worth being stuck in a boring immersion for the next 30 minutes. And so I think that's something that I was very hesitant to do, is, like, break the immersion, get out of my thespian, like, everything is part of the game mindset, and be like, okay, if they're going to waste time on this, I should come from come at them from the dungeon master metagaming to be like guys stop wasting your time like you're good to go and that has so, improved my game and sped up my game dramatically yeah. for me uh it's like i'm going in the exact opposite direction of you and it's so interesting because <laughs> let's hear it. it it almost breaks for me it's like it's like a crime because i feel like it's such a missed storytelling opportunity when there are small details like that it's almost a case of Chekhov's gun where you see something and the players interact with it and it's like this has to be significant like this mirror like this broken mirror like it's like it, it's this weird object like and yet it serves no pur- it it serves no purpose like that for me like that's almost a crime against storytelling because you shouldn't include details that aren't significant wow mm. that is that mm. is really interesting because so like when i yeah yeah this is a dungeon design problem uh, especially in like those little text box you read, like when someone you enter a room and you see an overturned torch and a goblin corpse. Like for me, I'm going. Sometimes a goblin corpse is just a goblin corpse. 
But for like a screenwriter or a playwright, they're like, oh yeah. no, that's Chekhov's gun. That goblin corpse has to be the key to a mystery or killed by the big bad, right? Like that's that's really interesting. So David, you would mm-hmm. prefer less details, but the details you do get are always important? Yeah, because wow. for, or at least they can yeah. they have the possibility of becoming important. So J.J. Hmm. Abrams talks about like the, building this uh, mystery box world where there's a lot of details and they might raise a lot of questions and those questions slowly become answered over time. That's interesting because J.J. Abrams yeah. is notoriously terrible at endings. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so like I really like that everything is part of this mystery box thing, but I mean – I have to default to sometimes a dead goblin is just a dead goblin, right? Mm. I don't know. I, I kind of agree with David. Like, why? And if you were building building your own dungeon, which wouldn't be a mega dungeon, by the way, once again, um, I think you <laughs> would make every detail matter. Like, oh, there's a pool of blood on the floor in this room. It doesn't mean anything. Like, no, you should definitely make it mean something. And I think Dungeon of the Mad Mage is just, there's a lot of rooms and they needed to fill them with something. And so now you have a hallway of magical candles that don't really do anything. Okay, so I guess... And it's weird because in previous dungeons that I've been through in 5e products, those candles have meant something, Mm -hmm. which is the weirdest part. I guess, yeah, sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. I guess I'd rather have a dungeon that's... So, so two points. First point is your dungeon should always be full. Like there should, uh, like that's something I've noticed. Even though it's hyper realistic, obviously, and if you go into a real dungeon or if we go into a real abandoned place, almost every room is going to be completely empty with cobwebs and moss and some water on the floor and maybe a rat. But like it's it's not going to be exciting, and so. But there's always going to be details that stand out to you, is the thing. No, 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 no. In real life, think in real life. If you go into like an abandoned sewer system, you're not going to find like pentagrams on the wall and stuff. I mean, you might, but like every room is not going to have a cool detail. And so I think what Five E is trying to do, and what a lot of dungeon designers are trying to do, is to make it realistic. Like, yeah, there's going to be obviously empty storehouses. There's going to be rooms that are just full of broken boxes and cobwebs. And so it's like, how do you balance the uh, realism with like, oh, every room should have like a Chekhov's gun in it, you know? At this point, it's becoming Chekhov's armory and it's getting unrealistic, you know? Hmm. Yeah, I I think it's uh, it's because I'm looking right now at the map of the level one and I'm looking at like certain sections of it and I'm realizing there's things because they, they took the old um, Undermountain product from like the 90s, early oh, 90s, yeah. 90s uh, and they just picked out a bunch of parts of it and split it up into levels. Yeah. Um, and there's a hallway that connects to what the part I'm, we've been talking about with the candles and that entire section, you could just cut it out. Like, you don't need to have that. But like, I don't know. I guess some players like to see something like, Oh, that's really cool. Interesting. It just shows the magic of the world. Like, I don't know. Like if we were in, uh, if we were playing dragon heist and we're all level two and you see, uh, a, a uh, young wizard uh, light a cigarette with the produce flame cantrip. Like, are, are you going to be like, ugh, why did the dungeon master say that? That's not useful. Or are you going to say, oh, that's a really cool, flavorful part of the world. I think the point that David is getting at is that there's a sort of a game design expectation of like, if it's here, it probably matters. And it's just surprising to see details like many, like really cool, like, oh, hey, that's that's cool details that don't matter at all. That is it's like so. I think it's a, it's a clarification issue because 
in video games, if I'm going through like a level and I walk by a bunch of floating magical torches, like there'll be a thing that pops up that can say whether or not I can interact with it. Like I'll hover over it and it will say like interact and then I press that and then I can do more things or there won't be that feature and it's just a part of the world and it just looks aesthetic and I know to move on because there's nothing that I can do. And that's kind of the problem that I'm getting at is that there are certain things where it's hard to tell whether or not it's something to interact with because D&D is such a fluid game. I I agree with that. I think this is a... uh... We were really digging in deep to a <laughs> problem with dungeon mastering um, that is like, do you describe everything? Is every like the, the the core tension is is everything Chekhov's gun, or sometimes are there just random guns on the wall? Because there is a good point that you're making where it's what like what details should you do when setting a scene? Because you definitely need to give the players the tone and the feel of the world. Like, yeah, this is a high magic world. There's people flying around on broomsticks. But then at the same time, like you also want to include those small details where it's like, this is something that the players should probably pick mm-hmm. up on. Like maybe For that sure. wizard that looks shady, that's lighting his own cigarette with his flame cantrip is someone that should be interacted with because you're pointing 100% it out. agree with all of that. And, but also is my, my secondary uh, advice to all dungeon masters out there is if your players are focused on something that they shouldn't be, if they're holding and loading and reloading Chekhov's gun, you have the right to save everyone's time by saying it's just a gun. And I think it, that's we, true. We sh- you shouldn't be afraid of breaking immersion for a few seconds to save, you know, half an hour on messing with something that has nothing, you know. But also. You can also take that into account as, you know, my players really like this thing. Maybe I should take more time to flesh it out because it is something that they really care about and want to focus on. And that's the balance and improvisation. And yeah, all these things are very specific to the the context of of how you're dungeon mastering too. Yeah. Oh, this this is a thing I've never really thought about. Yeah. Um, I have one thing to say quickly about random encounters, which is something that I have just... I've been thinking about random encounters for about a year, trying to figure out how to make them work. And every player that I've had, uh, especially after my last campaign, we we had a conversation and it was very beneficial. And they told me, here's everything they liked and that they didn't like about our, I think it was the Tomb of Annihilation game. And what they wanted was fewer combats, but the ones that we did have were more meaningful. Ah, uh, yeah. And I'm like, yes, I totally agree. I would love, like if you have one great combat per session, but it means something like it matters, that's much more fun than like, Oh, we're fighting another group of goblins again. Oh no. Um, and this is, this comes from uh, at least two problems. So problem number one is just the amount of time it takes to do a combat in five E is much longer than, uh, traditional D and D games in the past. A lot of these OSR games can resolve a combat in five to 10 minutes, which is great. Um, but that means that you can spend a lot more time just doing multiple fights that are kind of meaningless. Yeah. The other issue is um, players in 5e have a lot more power. There's just a lot of cool things they do, and they want to be able to use them and just you know go ham and annihilate yeah. the bad guys. So in dungeons, the traditional way you would keep pressure up is by saying, okay, well, every X amount of turns, there's a chance that a random monster appears and they will fight you. But if you do this in a dungeon in 5e, because we're talking about dungeons here, um, it really wastes time. It really does. And 
I think that for me, that was a big shift in game design because 5e dungeons need to be about moving the story along and moving the character yeah. relationships along. Every fight should and, be very narratively important and satisfying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I should yeah. make that hallway of candles come to life and just like attack David. Yeah. That's meaningful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think but at it least it's also, interesting. Yeah. For sure. I think it depends on the time crunch as well. Like if, if you get to play D&D once a month, yeah, maybe everything should be Chekhov's gun and, and be super important. But if you're playing every week, like you have more opportunity to kind of be like, okay, yeah, it's just a random dead goblin corpse and stuff like that. Um, yeah, one thing that I did, because I 100% agree with what you're saying. Like like there ne- there needs to be intentionality in every encounter. And it's just lazy. Like I'm still struggling with like random random tables and random encounters just kind of feel lazy. Um but I had one encounter that I did. Uh, my, my players were in Dungeon of the Mad Mage in a level called Slither Swamp. <sighs> and they were uh, getting through Slither Swamp and they decided to sleep on like this muddy island in the middle of the swamp. Um, and I don't think they had a guard because they had Liamid's tiny hut or whatever. So they're like, ah, let's just sleep eight hours. We're good. We don't need anyone to keep watch. And so they slept in this island and they woke up and there's all these zombies surrounding them. And it's like, it's really cool thematic, like, oh, holy crap, we wake up and there's just all these zombies that crawled out of the swamp. There's like, <sighs> like around the hut that they can't get into. Um, and so after that, I said, okay, what do you guys do? And they just got to kill these zombies. And my players, I think at that point were like level 10 or 11. So they just eviscerated them. Um, and it was just, how do you want to do this after how do you want to do this after how do you want to do this? And... And they and like it was weird. I was like, ah, like I was kind of thinking, why did I include that? That was that was just boring and dumb. Um, and so they went through the rest of the the encounter, the rest of the session. And my players messaged me later and said that was so delightful because every <laughs> one of our encounters has been so meaningful and thematic and part of the narrative. And we've almost died. That it's been horribly brutal. That when you get to just cut off a zombie's head. It felt really good. And it, it felt, it made us realize, oh my God, yeah, we're level 10. Like this is, we should be feeling as powerful. Um, and so that was a really interesting moment for me where I was like, okay, yeah, if, when you're at that high level, there should be occasionally something that, that attacks you where you just get to, and just feel really good about, okay, I'm, I'm level 10. This is, this is like, I have a lot of power and yeah, it it fulfills that power fantasy that 5e is so good at fulfilling. Um, but yeah, I I don't know. I wanted to add that, um, kind of the, like, I totally agree with your point, but I like the opposite of just like letting the, the players kill a giant rat (laughs) and just make it quick, but make them feel really strong. Hmm. And I think a lot of what we're talking about just comes down to balance and experience and pacing. And yeah, knowing yeah. when and when not to include certain things, uh, whether that's a detail or a combat encounter, or even having alternative ways to get out of a combat encounter. For sure, for sure. In 5th edition, uh, there are the three pillars. There are exploration, role-playing, and combat. Um, of those three, uh, how do you like to make each of them interesting uh, and and unique? What are the ways you exploit those or show off those three pillars of, of what 5e tries to be. Hmm. Honestly, probably the the thing that 5e supplements do really well is exploration. 
mm-hmm. because they have a lot of really interesting things. As much as you know, we say they include details that don't matter, they also include a lot of really interesting details to explore and interact with. Like some of flavor, the puzzles yeah. and traps are really creative and really interesting. Just thinking about all of the the different ones that uh, were in uh, Schult. And, oh my gosh! In in that dungeon, trying to problem solve and figure out, yeah. you know, the Minotaur maze and all of those different things, and the the spiral room where you walk around and it's just kind of endless. Like that's super interesting. Yeah, and there's not a lot of other details like that that you can really interact with in the the regular like T and D overworld. So I will say that if you're looking for inspiration. The 5th edition supplements do a really good job at including details to explore and interact with. Yeah, that's true. And maybe that's something we've not talked about yet, is that there's some crazy stuff you can do with dungeons that you cannot do in the overworld. Um, like like David mentioned, there's this uh, sort of a zero-gravity ring in a unnamed dungeon, no spoilers here, um, that does very strange things with your world and with your world building. Um and that's something that is actually hard to describe even when I was reading the uh, the map key. Yeah. Like, what is this? This gravity ring? Um, so yeah, definitely the uh, the exploration might be the primary pillar of of dungeons. Like you might think yes. it's combat, but I think a lot of it has to do with just discovery and, and well, finding especially if we expand the, def- the definition of exploration, because... Yeah, I think the um, what really opened me up to this because originally I, you guys know, I was super into role playing and just like, okay, this is this thespian thing we do where we all pretend to be someone else and occasionally we'll roll dice and do math for combat. But I think the the true uh, pillar of exploration was really revealed to me when we played uh, Halloween games and I would do like just a thematic like haunted house. And when I would describe these these horrific things of like when they go into each room and they'd see the pentagrams and blood or the candles or the chain devil controlling a bunch of children like puppets, like the way I described it, like my my players were like, oh, my God, can we turn the lights on? Like, <laughs> and, and that's when I went, oh, that's what exploration is. Like, it's not just this geographical cartography thing. It's like, no, the description and discovery of the world around you. And if you can do that in a really good way, oh my gosh, it pays off so well. It's it's delightful. I was recently listening to the first episode of the second campaign of Critical Role. And there is so much in the way of exploration and discovery in that game, even though they didn't move geographically very much, but just like world building that happens yes. Yes. Um, in the narration of the game. And uh, specifically in that, that episode, there's like a carnival and cool things happen at the carnival. Um, but I was just blown away because, um, I mean, a lot of it is just beautiful acting and writing and role play. I think yeah. the hardest thing about exploration and discovery is that it is an active thing that needs to be done on the player's behalf passively combat can happen to you passively story can happen to you but you can't passively explore things it's something that you have to take an effort to go and ask questions Mm -hmm. and try to interact with things in different ways and that's probably why it's the least of the three pillars in the D D community 
Absolutely. I, and I think it it's kind of tied to this relationship of, between the player and the dungeon master. A lot of times the player will feel like the dungeon the dungeon master will say what the room looks like. And the player's like, okay, that's it. And we'll just kind of go about their business. But oftentimes the dungeon master is sitting there behind the screen like, I want them to look at the window. I want them to look at the window. I want them to look at the window. And like, I don't feel bad as a player to even like kind of metagame or just like out of character be like, okay, what does the window look like? Or what does this look like? Because us as dungeon masters are like, yes, like there's something more to reveal. And so I, I love what you said, David, like exploration isn't active. Like you cannot be, pa you cannot be a passive explorer. You have right. to take initiative and be like, okay, I want to look in this corner. I want to look behind the bookshelf. I want to open the door. <laughs> like th those are the things that are really important. And sometimes there's nothing there, but mm -hmm. a lot of the times the dungeon master is like, please look behind the bookshelf, you know? I have an example of passive exploration, and that is the Pirates of the Caribbean ride in Disneyland, where Whoa, you just are pushed yeah. down a path and <laughs> things are just... Are but even then, that's, I wouldn't consider that exploring because you're sitting on a ride being told this no, no. narrative story. But, but that's my so, point. That's my point. For so sure. But that's that not is, really. But that's what they're trying to give you the illusion of. Obviously, all of Disneyland yeah. is passive, right? You kind of wait in line yeah. and you experience yeah. things. But their goal as storytellers is what do they call themselves? Uh, Imagineers. Imagineers. Yeah. <laughs> like their goal is to put you on an adventure while you're sitting on your butt doing nothing, <laughs> right? Like, and that's a hard job yeah. for you Isn't to sit down. Isn't that what D&D &D is? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> that is. Hot take. Hot oh take. my gosh. That, uh, well, we're all, we're not dungeon masters anymore. We're Imagineers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, wow. That, that is really true though. Like, I think the, oh my gosh, I'm having so many epiphanies. So... <laughs> The, the goal of the storyteller is to make you feel like you're on an adventure when you're sitting on your butt, mm -hmm. right? Like it, it's to have empathy and, and that, that's, that's all we're trying to do is we're trying to tell a good story. We're trying to produce action and adventure and exploration and all this role playing is we're on our butts. And like the whole thing is like trying to get out of the, yeah, we're just friends sitting around a table. Like it's like. You are, but oh, the goal is to make it so much more. I, th I think mm -hmm. I broke Jake. So just just to back up a little bit, I mean, most entertainment that we consume is passively consumed. Like even if you're yeah. playing a video game, like it's actively sure. engaged with your brain and your hands or whatever, um, but you're still sitting on your butt. So that's really no, not very differentiating in the world of entertainment. For and sure. I think that getting back to the main point of creating exploration, I think it is building a dungeon that begs questions. Oh yeah. Yes. So you, if you, I like to think about the Game of Thrones world where it's so deep that every time you look into something, you you want to ask more about it. Like who are the faceless yes. men? Where do they come from? All of these things. Dungeons are the same way. You want to build it in a in a manner that asks you, why do these candles exist? Why are they floating? <laughs> why are they on fire? Yes. And 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 continually provide details that want that just draw the players in to do the exploring That's that so is good. very true david um however i would also mention that in game of thrones the only reason we give a crap about the world of game of thrones is because we really care about the players which brings me to yes. my next point uh the next pillar which is role playing because in 5e and really if you're if you're doing role playing right which means you can do it wrong is you the, the characters are the most important 
part of the game, which is an epiphany I recently have had as of a couple hours ago, which I already really? knew, but I kind of forgot, and now I know again. <laughs> I'm on a journey, Jake. I'm I on a journey. I forgot, now I remember. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's been a really weird year. Uh, here we go. Uh, but yeah, so role-playing is a pillar, um, and, and I would categorize, like if we're talking about this in terms of dungeons... Role-playing includes factions, conflict, and social manipulation, like I mentioned before. Um, just giving players an opportunity to to be creative. I recently finished playing through um, some, one of my favorite game video game franchises of all time, which is called Deus Ex, uh, Human Revolution, and uh, Mankind Divided. Shout out to uh, all the fans out there who know they're not getting a sequel because the games got canceled. Sorry. Yeah, I'm really <laughs> sad about it. Anyway, um, in those games, they, they give you so many different ways to solve any one problem. And although Dungeons, uh, as we've just gone over and over in this episode, they have a narrower approach. Um, like if we're out in the open world and we say you need to steal this document that's in a chest in this noble's mansion... The players can think of probably a hundred ways to go solve that problem. But in, in a dungeon, I'm like, okay, you have to go get this thing out of a chest that's way down in the bottom of this dungeon. That's blocked by a minotaur. Yeah, but there's <laughs> yeah. only like, there's one particular path and there's one particular uh, set of challenges in the way. You, you see it's it's narrower, narrower. Yeah. So um, this is where role-playing kind of creates that, that next path, maybe. Like if you can't kill the minotaur and you can't talk to it, maybe you can charm it or something i don't really know no like no i I totally get this and i think um you know when i was talking about it earlier they uh sometimes in dungeons they're broken boxes um that's true and that's realistic to what an actual dungeon would be but also realistic to what an actual dungeon would be is factions in the dungeon vying for territory making deals with each other having trade networks like if you're gonna have sentient uh, I guess the t- technical term is sapient creatures in the in the dungeon. Like, yeah, that network should be lively and active, and you should see traces of it everywhere. Um, and so, I really like including factions of hobgoblins fighting factions of kobolds, um, and you can kind of pick sides and you know choose who you kind of want to be the victors. Or yeah, it's. It's really delightful when there's kind of a, an active ecosystem in the dungeon that you're exploring. An example I have of this is, uh, it's not even a mega dungeon, this is the Fane of the Night Serpent in the later part of, oh, Tomb of Annihilation. I, I cut that, yeah. Oh, you cu- Oh, what a shame. Um, so yeah. the non-spoiler summary of it is, it's just a bunch of UNT up to no good in their little lair. Um, but there's all kinds of political threads that are going all the time in there and it's it's just one faction really but because of the different characters and what they want it gives the characters threads to pull unless they go through the dungeon backwards and uh kill everything which my players kind of did uh, so it's you know it's a moot point yeah yeah it's um i think role playing is is really i mean i i guess it's really uh important in 5e like they they really tried to uh make it a vital part a vital pillar and i think they did really good and in dungeons it may be a little bit harder but there's so many ways to include factions of uh different creatures vying for parts of the dungeon or even just like an npc that's like injured and dying and you meet him and he's like oh thank god you came here (laughs) breathe my last breath you know and it's like oh sweet we got a new npc buddy um (laughs) No, yeah, there's plenty of ways to infuse role-playing in dungeons, and it just makes them all the more 
lively and realistic. Yeah. And, and, and well, if not realistic, then it provides a sense of verisimilitude, which is uh, uh, having the appearance of realism, um, even if it's in a fantasy world and we use magic to power our lanterns. <laughs> the last thing I want to touch on is combat. Um, because 5e does combat really well. That doesn't mean you should always and only be doing combat. Um, I, I say it like this. Not everything is trying to kill you, but some things definitely are. Um, and, and we, this is just reiteration. We want fewer fights, but more meaningful fights. So just plan ahead. And, uh, maybe if, if it's a a useless fight, maybe just hand wave it, uh, lower the health, whatever you have to do, um, just to kind of move along. I think... Yeah. Well, I think that combat is more than just your hit points, and dungeons should be taxing mm-hmm. in that they're either difficult to traverse, it's like hard to see because it's dark, or you can get sick, or you know, there's all sorts of different factors and knobs and that you can twist and turn to make it feel more taxing because for sure. you know, maybe gravity's heavier in this dungeon for some reason. I don't know. But you want to make it feel more weighted in a character sense absolutely like if you're um if your players are marching gleefully through the dungeon something's wrong like Mm -hmm. you need to have a little more traps or you need to have um a little more fog you need to have a little less visibility you need to have a little more monsters something because like no adventurer should be just gleefully striding through uh, a dungeon it should be like oh my gosh we have to move forward like th- there should be this sense of dread and fear because of either what you've described to them in the description or because of uh, what they fought uh, obviously it, it should be scary dungeons should be scary and they shouldn't be just running sprinting through them yeah all right well um let's get some advice for making a dungeon when I'm making a dungeon, um, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you guys. What I what I do is I look for a pre-made skeleton. Mm-hmm. Um, what I, I, I've recently been loving as I've been going through old AD&D adventures that are just silly and hilarious um, and so dated. And you're obviously like trying to save a a damsel in distress who's uh, probably wearing a bikini and like all this just ridiculous eighties stuff. Um, but like the, the shell of the adventure, the skeleton of itself might have a lot of gems in it. Um, and so whether I'm, whatever module I'm using, I'd like to have a skeleton just to give me that uh, guide, the, the, the guideposts to, to work within. And then once I have that, I can in, insert whatever I want. Um, and then going forward, I like to, uh, not use so much of like this room is numbered this which has this but have kind of the uh not uh, dungeon crawl but the point crawl where there's all sorts of uh fantastic things i want to show and reveal but they're not in like they might not be in a linear way um just to get the best things in front of the player's eyes so yeah that's how i i start with the shell of something that's probably pre-made um, like I'm not, I'm not sitting here with a piece of scrap paper drawing my dungeon out. Uh, but once I have that, uh, the, the bones of a, of a dungeon, I can fill it to my desire with whatever I want. It's pretty good, pretty uh, lazy in in a good way. I mean that in a very good way, because uh-huh. I think it is easy to get bogged down when you're like drawing on graph paper. Here's every single square and every oh, single crap. Room Here's the and... T intersection, or should this lead Ugh. to this? Yeah. Oh yeah. What I do is. Um, 
yeah, kind of like you said, point crawls. I just do a bunch of bubbles, and I kind of like, oh, this room, here's the kitchen, and here's this. But um, here is the best dungeon building advice that I've ever heard. I've written it down, and I use it now. Uh, this is from my pal, Hanker and Fernail, uh, from Runehammer. Uh, this was his advice, and it's just so good. I need more of the world to hear it. I also want more people to listen to his podcast, so go look him up. It's it's worth listening. Hyper-focused kind of content. So step one, this is a kind of a step-by-step process. Step one, think of what he calls your power word, and that is a one-word theme for your entire dungeon. And so um, one that I came up with, I believe, was... Uh, Black salt, I think it was it. It was like a black salt dungeon. Salt. Yeah, yeah. And I'm making it one word, but it's um, let's go with something more broad. Uh, rage. Rage. Okay, David picks rage. I guess it's almost like the random tabletop we do. Uh, <laughs> so the theme is rage. I don't know what that means. And then you, next, you think of the whole truth, and this is the story behind this dungeon. So if it's rage, it sounds like something bad has happened here. Maybe I, I'm thinking blood sacrifices. Yep. But like the enemies are all kind of barbarians. I was thinking like orcs. Yeah, okay. It's definitely a more like tribal, but very scary culture, summoning demons and whatnot up to no good. Uh, So we know that, and now we need to tie characters into it. So uh, you think about how can I bring my characters into the game? So maybe a family member got brought here. Maybe they were sacrificed. Maybe you're here to rescue somebody. Um, Maybe you find somebody here who you knew from. Maybe you're here for revenge. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. That's fun. Because so, you're you're mad, you're angry. So oh, and maybe there's an aura here that makes you angrier. Yeah, like you oh, lose control yeah, of your character. Like, yeah, like disadvantage of wisdom checks or something. Yeah, you just get more and more like primal berserk. Um, so that's good. We tied our characters in, and next is sensory descriptions. You just want a, a few bulleted points about like what it looks like here. You kind of zoom in on one square inch. Like what information can you get? Like maybe the the walls have like dried blood on them. It's kind of sticky everywhere you walk. Yeah. Um, it's I, I'm seeing like candle smoke and maybe some lava. That seems good. Ooh. Yeah. Or I'm yeah, a lot of blood. Just kind of dried weird, blood on like, the ground all the carvings time. of like angry faces. Yes. And <laughs> also I want as many bladed um not only just like weapons like on the walls, so like they're just sharp and dangerous everywhere. Um because maybe this culture considers bleeding to be like yeah. uh you know, oh, a right essential. Yeah. yeah. I'm just imagining like stalactites, like yeah. dripping like red liquid or lava oh, or something. Great. That's just That's great. Um the other thing is um, so it's kind of like sticky, but also slick in some places. Uh, we have maybe lava or or like boiling blood. I don't really know. This sounds like an extra planar kind of environment. The last thing you do is you come up with excuses for danger, uh, which we've kind of got at. There's like blades on the walls and it's slick and slippery. So the footing is not safe. These You're just trying to answer the questions. What is dangerous here? What part of the environment can I use uh, either for my advantage or um, can enemy use against enemies use against me? So if you can fill out this worksheet, um, then you will have a really pretty good dungeon, I think. Yeah, I really like that. I really, I yeah, that like the, because all of it is, it has to be tied together. And it starts with like that thematic, maybe not even word, but like phrase. Yeah, something very um, short and punchy. Yeah, and like once you get that, and I think any dungeon master, if they go, hey, like a lot of people have messaged us like, hey, I'm trying to do this kind of dungeon help. And it's like, what is your theme? And then once you get that, oh, you My just theme like, is acid. 
<laughs> no, you're good. Oh my gosh. So yeah, you got Yuntai that are making different types of acids and poisons, and they're mixing them together. And oh my gosh, and you, you, the characters come in, and there's a big snake mouth with fangs. We have acid. hallucinogenic I mean, drugs also, so it's like oh. the characters are on acid yeah. while oh. surrounded by t like oh. toxic acid. So and then you oh, get like this wait, rainbow hold on. hallucination. Hold on, you guys play D and D without dropping acid? <laughs> okay, <laughs> we can't all be like you, Jake. All right, so what are some common misconceptions? about dungeons all dungeons are prisons <laughs> oh <laughs> like like you mean starting in in there like a you just escape from prison or like that they're all holding something uh you're all in the back of a cart hey you are finally awake you were trying to cross the border right On okay stop with the skyrim <laughs> jokes david <clears throat> misconceptions i think um like David mentioned, there's a misconception that all dungeons are about combat. Because that's yeah. one that I hold, too, where you're like, oh, I'm here to fight. Like, I'm here to, to kill a bunch of stuff and take your stuff. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. This is, might be a little bit of an aside that I might cut. But um, <laughs> there's this thing I, I saw it on Reddit. And it's basically a role-playing game where you try to get to talk to the president. Oh. And it's like, how do you go about that? And but, And it's like... It kind of shows that, like, if you play your cards right, you can just talk to the right people to eventually talk to the president. Interesting. Um, what is where this it's like, called? Because I want to play it now. I can't remember, but it's just like this hypothetical of, like, how do you, uh, like, how do you do an impossible task by just talking? Because technically, yeah, you could, like, if you had an army, you could gun your way down and eventually talk to the president. But it's, like, it, it's really interesting to think about, like, the Pentagon as a dungeon, that you can infiltrate and get what you need without, you know, an army, without force. It, it's it's really interesting when you think about dungeons, going off what you said, when you think about dungeons without the need for force. It, it, it changes the conception of dungeon completely. Like a social dungeon would be more like a dinner yeah. party or the Pentagon. Yeah, definitely. That's yeah. great. That is great. And then when yeah. you mix and match real dungeon and social dungeon, mm, you got to still oh. going. Mm. Mm. So good and tasty. Okay, all right. Uh, what are some other all misconceptions? Right. Misconceptions. Uh, do all dungeons need to be outdoors? Uh, rather, do all dungeons need to be indoors? I think all dungeons should be outdoors. Uh, what? <laughs> all? Wow. Okay, hot take. They're all just corn mazes. <laughs> so I think um, this leads into mine that the the corn maze thing. Um, I don't think dungeons, uh, have to all be indoors. Obviously there can some like be in the clouds. There can, there, they can be underwater, but there has to be some barrier to the outside world. Like it's a, you're committed to doing this thing. Like you mm -hmm. can't easily dip in and out of it. Um, that's what I love about the mad mage where it says in the book, like you cannot teleport in and out of the mad mage because if you could, it, it would not seem as dungeony right yeah. you could just go okay i need to buy some supplies everyone get around me and you just go back to water deep like there's that's... like a, a huge list of spells that don't work in the dungeon yeah and i think that and i yeah for that reason is to make it feel more like a dungeon because in any normal dungeon when you're level let's say 17 like it doesn't feel like a dungeon anymore right you can fly through it you can teleport like yeah, it's it's it doesn't feel as dungeony. So I think that the point of a dungeon needs to be limiting options, kind of putting uh, ceilings, floors, and walls around you, 
I'm forcing you into more uh, harsh predicaments. Uh, but no, I, obviously it doesn't have to be indoors. It's just easier to logically do that than it is to like have a dungeon in the clouds. Um, even though that could be really awesome. But um, what, what, what David was saying about like the corn maze, um, I saw some video, I can't remember where I saw it, it just popped into my head of this guy who freaks out like in the center of a corn maze and is like, ah, and just starts running oh, no. and just runs through the corn <laughs> and just like breaks through each wall of the hedge maze. Just, just, and he finally gets outside and he's like bleeding a little bit from his arms from just like sprinting through the walls corn damage um, corn damage <laughs> you've been uh, yeah you take you take 3d4 piercing damage for <laughs> um but yeah it, it shows that like um obviously there are walls of a dungeon but players can do some crazy stuff to i guess i don't know dig through the walls or just like dungeons are made to be linear but i think you should reward creativity for players that are willing to like this man to just run through the corn maze, you know, <laughs> occasionally bouts of creativity are, are really effective and should be rewarded. Um, so this is another aside. Um, there's a game called mouse guard because this is the only game in which I think this could work. Oh, um, yeah. I want to have like a, uh, a combine tractor that's like harvesting corn, like the, the big, you know, vert- uh, horizontal like harvest bar grinding through corn. And then you're a bunch <laughs> of mice like trying to get through a corn maze <laughs> But you got to do it fast enough, otherwise you'll be ground up. Like that's so fun. Is there a D and D analog we could we could put players in? in oh man. Doom? Yeah. I mean, all, like you said earlier, I, I don't know if you said it in this episode, but you said it in the first one, um, it's like timers. That there's no game that isn't improved with the timer. Uh, um, from shut except up for the down. game of life. <laughs> Actually, completely disagree. If we were all immortal. <laughs> We'd be bored really quickly. That's true. That's true. It's the only thing that keeps me getting up in the morning. I'm bored right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. Um, well, I think that's all of my misconceptions. Any, any more? Um, more Dungeons in the Sky. We need some more Bioshock Infinite-esque dungeons where the risk Ooh. is falling off the edge. Uh, what if I have a dungeon that's just deep inside a bank, like inside a vault? A question vault. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I thought we were gonna go and end up in some sort of like fallout joke, but nope. It was always the question vault. <laughs> Welcome to the question vault. Each week we answer one of your questions. You can submit your question to voxercanapodcast at gmail.com. This week's question is from Scott P. He writes, Hey gang. Love the podcast. Here's one for the question vault. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. One thing in the, in the rules I couldn't wrap my head around is damage. Your party gets in a deadly fight. You take a couple arrows in the shoulder, leg, or whatever, or a sword slash across the back. The battle is over and the party rests for eight hours and poof, you've healed back to full HP. Not very realistic. This one always drove me nuts about the game. About a month ago, while looking through the PHB, I saw something in the sidebar about the damage and hit points section. It reads, damage doesn't really show until you reach a percentage of your total HP, which got me thinking damage is just minor cuts and strained muscles until that last hit that puts you at zero HP. The blow that hits true cuts you good or serious internal damage. What do you think? How do you handle describing damage taken in your game? Ah. I think that this just hit on a big David triggering topic about <laughs> how D&D and RPGs handle damage because it doesn't really make a lot of sense realistically but it is more fun to play 
I think that damage is more of fatigue than anything. If you think of hit points as like your life points, then you're it's you're gonna get misconstrued. Whereas it's more of your stamina or fatigue. I like to think of like sports players when uh, when when you when you play a game for a long enough or any sort of sport, you start to get tired and you start to get less effective. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I view combat to a point where you are fighting to a point of you get so worn down that eventually you make a mistake or get make a blunder and like you get you take an arrow through the head mm-hmm. or you die or something along those lines. But up until that point, like you're still able to fight. It's it's like you get the wind knocked out of you when you take a big blow of HP, but it doesn't actually have any sort of real tangible effect. I personally, I would like to see there be more tangible effects as you go lower in HP mm-hmm. because it doesn't really scale. Um, you're, you're kind of at a hundred percent effectiveness until you drop down to zero HP, at which point you are unconscious. And I wish there was more of a like a linear progression, mm. but interesting. Yeah. I think like Will was alluding to, the linear progression would obviously be more realistic. You know, like we talked about this in our death episode, character death or player death episode, um, that uh, when like you're taking damage, obviously this should be weakening weakening you and, and you're kind of put on this death spiral where you get weaker and then take more damage and then get weaker and take more damage. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting how how damage works in D and D. And I, I don't think there's any other way to do it, but it, it like trying to imagine 25 bludgeoning damage compared to 25 psychic damage. It's like, what does that look like? Like what is it's, it's very interesting. And I think Scott asks in his, in his question, he asks two questions really about grievous injuries well, technically he asked three questions. Like kind of grievous injuries, um, how quickly you recover from those, and then also describing damage. So in it, to answer his first two questions, I, I like when a monster critically hits a player that it does something extraordinary. I always lead I, – I already lean into – critical failures and critical successes because I think they're delightful. And I think there should always be a 5% chance that something incredibly good or incredibly terrible happens at all times. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, like maybe a character loses a finger or loses a hand or loses, like it's really cut or has a punctured lung, something like that. Um, That would be, I'm experimenting with this more and more, but it would be more permanent Unless a skill that is so rarely used in D&D, it is criminally underutilized, the medicine skill. Um, I, I've, I've really leaned into that and I want my players to be like, okay, this guy's, uh, we'll say his hand is almost cut off. Like you have to do, you have to pour a health potion on it and do a medicine check in order to try to give this guy use of his left hand again. You know, mm. if it's that bad. Um and so some players, you have to be in good communication with your players. Some players are like, that's awesome. I want there to be these crazy um, possibilities of grievous injuries. And other players are like, what? How dare you take my left hand from me? Like, you can never take that from me. Like, you can make me unconscious. You can kill me. But how dare you cripple my character forever? Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so it's, it, I think it's an ongoing conversation of what kind of game the players want and you want. Like, do you want this horrific grievous injury chart where players are losing eyes and limbs all the time? Or do you want this kind of heroic thing where when you reach zero hit points, it's just kind of you being like, oh, I can no longer fight any longer, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and they just gently lay down and yeah, wait. Yeah. Wait till that's over. That's funny. Yeah, there's there's no clear answer here, but um, yeah, I, I've personally gone back and forth on this. The way the PHB describes it is health is a combination of um, mental and, and physical well-being and morale. Um, so yeah, if you want to change it, it's going to change your game a lot. For Thanks, sure. Scott. For sure. Thanks, Scott. Thank you for listening to Vox Arcana, episode 50. I'm William. I'm Jake. And I'm David. We'll see you next time. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and email us at voxercannapodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> There's a millitude. Ba 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 ba.